0: Good afternoon. I'm Sandy Hunt, Managing Director of the Wharton Social Impact Initiative, and I'm delighted to welcome you to our conversation today with C.B. Bhattacharya. C.B. is the H.J. Zoffer Chair of Sustainability and Ethics at the University of Pittsburgh's Katz Graduate School of Business and the author of the great new book, Small Actions, Big Difference. Welcome to Wharton, C.B.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you have a rich career in this space. Tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this topic.
1: Well, I'm actually back at my alma mater, so my PhD was from Wharton. And it was in marketing, which doesn't have a direct link to what I do today. But as I was an assistant professor back in the day at Emory University, during that time, I met a gentleman by the name of Ben Cohen, and he was the CEO of this company called Ben & Jerry's. So he was the Ben of Ben & Jerry's. And he asked me kind of an interesting question. He said, you know, we do a lot for the environment, and we do a lot for society. Can you help me understand if what we do for the environment and for society, um, does it help us sell ice cream? And I found that to be a fascinating question, and this is the mid-1990s, mind you. Uh, I found it a fascinating question on multiple fronts. First he was talking about sales and how to increase sales. And as marketing people, we are always talking about how to increase sales. On the other hand, he was talking about environmental attributes and social attributes of a product kind of driving sales. And nobody was looking at that at that point in time. And so I said, okay, I don't know the answer to this question, but I'm going to, you know, think about it. And so that really started my transition to the field of what uh, we now Call corporate social responsibility or, 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 or CSR, and that proved to be kind of the, the turning point for my, for my career. And then one thing led to another. You know, there were several articles to be, to be written, several questions to be explored. And I started down that path. And as I was researching for my last book, um, Leveraging Corporate Responsibility. I uh, made an interesting observation, and the observation was that um, these corporate responsibility managers or sustainability managers in companies, companies like P&G, General Mills, Timberland, I, you know, researched all these companies, they were all all very smart, uh, very good people, but they were kind of lonely. And what I by- mean by that is that they did not have a seat at the Strategy table of the company, and to me this struck uh, as as odd and not something good for the field because in my research I'd found that it's only when CSR is treated as a strategy, only then does it benefit the firm and benefit society and so on and so forth. So I started thinking about my the next book, which now comes out as Small Actions, Big Difference. How can we, you know? onboard the entire organization into this journey of making our companies more more sustainable. So that, in short, is, is kind of how I get here.
0: Excellent. And before we go into the solutions the book outlines, let's talk about the problem. You say this isn't working at companies for two reasons. One is that bosses delegate the task to a single unit rather than integrating it throughout the entire corporate strategy. And two is that boards believe unsustainable practices can be solved by a change in management. Let's talk about how those show up and um, and and really illustrate those problems? What does it look like in the first case? How, do you, how would you know, gosh, that's, that's my company. We need to change.
1: Right. So there is this mistaken conception in the field, in, in uh, large parts of the corporate field, I would say, that sustainability, the well-being of our planet and its people, is... The next iteration of CSR, or corporate social responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I'm going to India next week to speak at a conference which is called CSR 3.0. So it's it's like you know uh, goes higher and higher. Now this is uh, this is wrong because sustainability has to do with the survival of the company, and as such, it deals with every organizational function. You know, starting from procurement, where do our raw materials come from? To disposal, kind of where do our products kind of end up? Um, and as you can imagine, every part of the organization is touched by the concept and actions that have to do with sustainability. So, or the, know, lens on, the, on the, the lens over the entire company. To, yeah. yeah. So that's why I call conducting business through the sustainability mm-hmm. lens. So everybody has to be onboarded and just relegating it to one unit so that you produce a sustainability report in which you just kind of note what all you've done as a company and showing yourself as a good corporate citizen is necessary but nearly not sufficient
0: so when a company is doing it right is there someone in each division or sector that is sort of a part of the sustainability team how do you make sure it's not siloed
1: um, yes that that happens first of all oftentimes there are no sustainability teams as such because sustainability is fully integrated into uh, product development in, in, you know into into R and D, into branding, into human resource management, into procurement, all 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 of that. And any team that you will find is we has what's called sustainability generalists, multiple people working in there who may not have a very deep knowledge of the science of sustainability or whatever, but who know enough so as to make those business decisions with that lens of sustainability. It's a
0: priority, and they're making sure that it shows that up. That
1: it's always integrated into every business decision made from the mailroom to the boardroom. That's, that's how it happens in certain companies. In other companies, you're absolutely right. I mean, there will be somebody from marketing, somebody from HR, uh, somebody from procurement, and they will be kind of the the ambassadors, if you will, Mm -hmm. to the overall kind of corporate uh, sustainability leadership leadership team. And then they, in turn, kind of cascade stuff through their respective departments. So I have seen both of those happening.
0: So that's the first way you see it not working and a little bit on the solution. The second challenge you raise is that it's not about a change in management or change management. It's really about changing how a company philosophically thinks about sustainability. Tell me more.
1: In our field, in the corporate world, we have this belief that change management can pretty much fix everything. Sure. So the lean manufacturing, you know, change management, you know, quality movement. I started my career management. in
0: consulting. Very so, familiar. So, <laughs> yeah. so, and,
1: and that's the bread and butter yep. of, of consultants. So I have seen several organizations who will say, well, we can get in a McKinsey or an Accenture to kind of, you know, uh, launch our sure. sustainability program. Yep. It, that's all very good, except sustainability speaks to the very philosophy of business and to the philosophy of the corporation, Mm -hmm. and change management does not do that. So traditional change management initiatives are still focused on how to increase profit. Whereas when it comes to sustainability, the first thing we're saying is that we have to go beyond profit to think about purpose. What is the purpose of the organization? And the purpose of the organization really is to play a role in society and and to be helpful towards the environment, to serve customers. So it's a multi-stakeholder kind of a concept. And as you know, the Business Roundtable recently came out and said that, you know, we need to go beyond profits. Larry Fink has been writing his uh, letters and so on. So it's when we think that, you know, a change management exercise can fix sustainability, again, I think... We are kind of ignoring some very important underpinnings of, of, of the concept, particularly when it comes to kind of convincing your employee bases that this is something worthwhile kind of engaging in rather than kind of being, uh, being, being bystanders. So, so rather than change in management, I would just cut out the in. It yeah. was more about kind of thinking that change management is going to be able to fix it. And that's wrong. It, it won't.
0: Excellent. For companies that don't have the expertise in-house— You're Mm -hmm. speaking to why bringing someone in from the outside may not be the solution. What would your advice be if they were looking to to bring in insight or um, some valuable perspectives about how to be a more sustainable company? Yeah.
1: So I'm not saying – don't bring someone from the outside. I mean, if you don't know what to do, of sure, course, you, yeah. you, need, you, need, you, you need help. And there are, you know, c- c- commercial mm-hmm. consulting organizations. There are also people like myself and others who work in the field who might be able to help. So that's all fine and good. But I think what is important is for whoever kind of comes in to, to help to understand this concept of kind of it's, it's just different from it's somewhat sustainability is a different kind of uh, an animal And, and let's try to understand kind of, you know, go take a step back and see why business exists in the first place. And why is that important? That's really important because if we don't ask that question, why do we do what we do as an energy company? I mean, my job literally is not to sell electricity, but it is to keep people comfortably warm or cold or help them do whatever they want to do with electricity. And that's a huge mindset shift. And when you tr- when you define your purpose, any company, they will always find that sustainability kind of is inherently built in t- into that definition. And so anyone who comes in to help you out, help any company out, as long as they have the, the right kind of uh, perspective on on what sustainability entails and what it would take to change an organization to transition its business model to be more sustainable, I think
0: we are fine. Excellent. Let's get into the solutions because I bet viewers are watching this and saying, gosh, this seems like a hard nut to crack. So your book outlines three steps. Can you summarize them for us? Sure.
1: Um, Yeah. So the three steps are incubate, um, where by and large, it's the leadership team and um, who gets together to define that all-important purpose that mm-hmm. I talked about. What's the company's purpose? And then they come up with a set of concrete goals or so the issues that are material for their company because a cement company could be very different from kind of a, uh, a consulting company or a financial services company or what have you. So everybody doesn't have to solve all the problems in the world. So the second phase is launch. And that's when we kind of unfold that program mm-hmm. for the employee base of the company and potentially other stakeholders as well, like you know uh, community members, supply chain members, even customers and so on. And the third phase is called entrench, where you undertake a set of practices that makes acting sustainably or, or doing business through that lens of sustainab- sustainability kind of like second nature. You know and and there we talk about kind of you know uh, providing feedback on progress you know through metrics and and kpis uh, we talk about creating this a vibrant culture of sustainability in the organization so that it 's kept fresh and it doesn 't become another flavor of the month and Then I talk about expanding your sense of kind of uh, ownership so that it 's not just about me anymore my company but it 's about the planet and that 's where We see traditional um, competitors collaborating, you know, to solve what I call the tragedy of the commons problems like kind of deforestation or e-waste that no one company can solve uh, by itself. So those incubate, launch and entrench are the three steps of my model.
0: Excellent. Well, let's dig in a little bit. On the incubation step, you're setting that mission, that purpose. Is that unique for each company? Or do you see companies within a particular sector all sort of having the same mission and purpose? I'm asking as I think about leaders who are going to watch this interview, read your book, buy and read your book, and then sit down at the whiteboard and say, how do I know I've landed at the the real purpose statement or mission statement of this company?
1: Right. it's a twofold answer to that. Any purpose, I believe, would have to have some kind of a normative component. So I'm not just doing or defining the purpose of the firm so that it resonates with my stakeholders. It also has to be, is this really what we are trying to mm-hmm. trying to accomplish or, or, or not? What comes from our hearts and minds as leaders and, and, and the leadership team? And then I can check to see is this something that, that gets buy-in mm-hmm. from my employees first and foremost of, of, out of all the stakeholder groups that I have. Um, if it does, if, if, if employees seem to understand that this is what we are trying to do, it should be reasonably easy to communicate. Otherwise, purpose gets, gets very, very, can get lost mm-hmm. and then, you know, it, it's defeated. Uh, but if it, if it is something that's true to who you are, as a company, and this is what you're really trying to do, and, you know, it, it has buy-in, your employees say, yes, I mean, this is, this is a good goal for us, you know, this is, this is indeed why we exist as a company, mm-hmm. then, then I think you're, you're, you're all right. And every company does not have to, even within the same industry, every company does not have to have the same, exact same purpose. I mean, so the purpose of, of all car companies might be to provide mobility, which mm-hmm. is, in fact, the basic purpose, you know, the reason I think that they're they're trying to do this, but that does not mean that somebody cannot add comfort to it, or somebody else cannot add, you know, uh, speed or, or or the experience or you know or a rush or whatever you call it. So there are definitely ways to kind of you know um, change your purpose mm-hmm. to to give it a certain uniqueness relative to
0: others. You talked about checking it with your employees as the first stakeholder group. What does that process look like? So you come up with a purpose statement, and you want to see if it resonates with your employees. That's a way to test if it's the right statement for your company. What do you do? Um,
1: you can do a town hall meeting. You know, so where you it's an open forum where employees come, and, you know, you can just have a Q&A session. I've seen CEOs lead this kind of a process, and it can be quite energizing for for the employees. The employees can provide feedback. It can also be done kind of uh, at the departmental kind of level. So, if the CEO and his or her leadership team have defined the purpose, they can, you know, you, you, you have these different ambassadors who can go out to their respective kind of uh, reports and kind of find out what 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 people are thinking about it. Uh, the main thing is that it has to have buy-in, both mm-hmm. externally and and internally. And, by gauging the energy and the resonance with what you're talking about, kind of, you know, uh, that's the surest way to know if, you, if you're on the right path or not.
0: So that one's a little art and a little science. Uh, what, yeah, all of sustainability, I
1: think, uh, or, or a lot of it is a little art and a little science. Yeah.
0: Excellent. So let's go into the second step where you're making your goals more concrete, sort of how I, you know, took that away. When it comes to social impact issues, sometimes you have blurry edges. We'll go back to your car example. You know, it's to get people places. Is it to get them there safely? Is it to do it with the smallest uh, you know, environmental footprint? Is it to do so building community? Is it to do so safely for children, pets, so on and so on? How do you know, how do companies draw the right line around those sort of specific dimensions of impact so that they aren't trying to boil the ocean and target 100 impact dimensions? Because it can get really tricky to know when to say when.
1: Sure, that's a great question. Um, So, what companies typically do is something called a materiality analysis, which in very simple terms is kind of what do our stakeholders think are the most important issues kind of facing the company, and what do our managers think are the most important issues facing the company. And so, stakeholders rate... All these different issues that you talked about, kind of, you know, I've participated as a stakeholder in in several companies' uh, surveys in terms of their materiality surveys. Um, And and we just, from our knowledge of the industry, uh, from the knowledge of the company, we say, okay, you know, these kinds of things are are really important. And then the company, you know, chooses a set of employees as well to, to rate the same universe of issues in terms of how important is it for the company. And then the the materiality matrix is simply kind of, you know, plotting those on a two-dimensional axis kind of, you know, and and so the importance according to the uh, employees and the importance according to the stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And then we choose, typically the company will choose those issues which are deemed important not only by the company itself, Mm -hmm. but also by the marketplace of of, of stakeholders. And more than three or four issues can make it or... Seven, let's say, in the case of Unilever, it can, you know, it it can get very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. Now, the question is, why is this step important? You don't want to boil the ocean yeah. because if you if you don't focus on anything, this is a quote in my book. If you don't focus on something, then nothing gets done. Yeah. So, you know, you got to prioritize. You have got to pick. I mean, let's talk of carbon. Carbon is extremely important for, let's say, uh, Lafarge, uh, Holcim, this large cement, the largest okay. cement producer in the world. But it is much less important for, let's say, a company like ING Financial mm-hmm. Services, you know, for whom uh, something like cybersecurity may be much more important. So it's to, the materiality is one way that we can boil down and distill our our goals and, and into, into concrete bite-size kind of chunks. And it's easier to disseminate these goals and the priorities to kind of the employee base and to the stakeholder base, I mean, I mean think of companies like Lafarge or Unilever or, or, or IBM. They have hundreds of thousands of employees. And, you know, to get into their heads kind of, okay, these are the three things that are mm-hmm. important, that makes progress much, much easier down the road.
0: Absolutely. Especially to consumers. I'm imagining the effort it takes for companies to say, this is what we care about. Right. You want to keep that list. Yeah. Mm-hmm. not 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 limitless, um so then, as we go to the end you and to the third step, you talk a lot about employee ownership, really getting this to be something that every single employee at the company sees as a part of their job as a priority of theirs. You talk about the heart and the head, both being necessary. Can you tell us a little bit more about that
1: yeah so so ownership is really kind of the centerpiece, mm-hmm. I think of this whole thing. I mean, there are companies who are giving directives to their, to their employees, kind of, okay, we need to be more sustainable, we need to sure. do this, we need to do yeah. that. But what's happening, if you do not go through this process of instilling this sense of ownership, then it becomes like you know going to the gym because I have to go to the gym, and, and my heart is not in, in this thing. What ownership does, and psychologically, this is psychological ownership, you're yeah. not owning something physical, but... What ownership does, it makes the individual employee take responsibility, you know, for sustainability, regardless of whether he or she is in the mailroom or whether he or she is in the boardroom. Like everybody can make make a difference. And so to, to instill that sense of ownership, I have to make an appeal. And I call this enticing employees to kind of on board. And it's different strokes for different folks. So the Right thing to do. This is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do for our planet. It's the right thing to do for our children. We will be extinct. I mean, all of these things are are going, you know, people are reading about in the newspapers. So several employees will resonate with this right thing to do kind of argument. The other argument is, well, it's not only the right thing to do, but it's also the smart thing to do because this look, this is saving you money. I spoke to um, Lisa Jackson, who's the top sustainability person at Apple. Mm -hmm. And she said that the most fun part or one of the most fun parts of her job is to actually go into businesses and say, you know, look, this is going to not only going to save you uh, the amount of metals you use in these products, but it's also saving you money at the same time. But it's a nicer saving because it's also helping the planet. So the head and the heart kind of work in tandem you know, and so therefore, you know, uh, companies oftentimes will use um, one or the other, but very often a mix of both.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that. You said sustainable investment takes time to pay off. You will have to spend money to get your house in an order. But once the returns start coming in, then there's no conflict between the sustainability and the profitability. Let's talk a little bit about that timeline, because I think this is a concept— most everyone can get excited about. But often what comes into play is, how much do I need to invest, and when will I see those returns? Mm-hmm. Returns in terms of profits, returns in terms of employee engagement, mm-hmm. and um, environmental impact. Can mm-hmm. you talk about what you've learned about those timelines? Sure,
1: um, another great question. <laughs> um, so the, so the, there is not, I would start by saying that there is not kind of one timeline, mm-hmm. and it depends on the kinds of initiatives mm-hmm. you undertake. In almost every organization I've studied, it seems like there's there's low-hanging fruit. And the low-hanging fruit really does not take long to to fix unless you're overly bureaucratic. And the low-hanging fruit oftentimes is as well kind of, you know, um, things that have high symbolic value, high signaling value, even if they are not the one that's kind of the, the the most intense sustainability activity that you could undertake. And
0: what would an example be? If- so
1: an example of a low-hanging fruit would be to basically say, kind of this is this is a, a plastic-free, you know, mm-hmm. a single plastic use-free zone. In our office, mm-hmm. we do not bring single plastic use bottles. You know, we each have our respective uh, coffee cups or mugs mm-hmm. and water water bottles and so on and so forth. And um, That's not that difficult to do, but it has a tremendous impact on just the employees' kind of, you know, uh, light bulbs going off. And, hey, I mean, you know, my company is taking this seriously. I mean, you know, so no more companies go to the next step and say, we will not have individual waste paper baskets in every office. You know, you will need to go to the common area and segregate your waste into, you know, what's recyclable, what's compostable, et cetera, et cetera. And you know what? Not having your own waste paper basket actually makes you produce less waste. Sure. Believe it or not, because people it. don't want to keep going. Convenience
0: is a huge right behavior driver.
1: That's, that's, that's absolutely correct. So these initiatives can can literally be done, kind of you know, in, in that three to six month timeframe. So these are quick wins. These L- are low quick cost, wins. Low high, cost visibility. high visibility, quick wins. Okay. Now then though. You know, if you want to change your entire procurement yeah. system or you want to, like, install uh, audits at, at your suppliers, which you should be doing, mm-hmm. those take a little bit longer to, yeah. to kind of uh, pay off. You want to build a factory, which is going to be completely uh, modernistic and, and up to code and so on, that's, um, those, those take a little bit longer to pay off. But it's a journey, and the most important thing is to get started. Yeah. You've got to get started with something that's noticeable and kind of, you know, becomes the cooler talk, you know, so people congregate around the water cooler and actually start chatting about yes, it.
0: With the reusable water bottles. With the reusable <laughs> water bottles.
1: That's exactly um,
0: right. And, a, you know, there's the, the, a lot of snowball philosophies. And it sounds like what you've seen is that when you do get these processes implemented, they begin to start to snowball um, have you seen any cases where companies have had success jumping right to big things as their first um, investment and sort of making a seismic shift in how they do business and capturing that transformative energy?
1: Simultaneously? Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, yes. So one company I studied was was Marks & Spencer, for example, this large retail organization across the world. And um, they took a very deliberate stand where they said that kind of, you know, it should not be that if we are going to open a new retail store, that someone has to decide individually kind of what kinds of lights to order and what mm. kinds of insulation to have. He said so their plan is called plan A, because there is no plan B. So that's what it says on the thing. And and, and, and it's, I spoke to the chief sustainability officer there, and he told me that, you know, Plan A just happens at the push of a button. I mean, you know, it's not that somebody actually has it's to. It's the default option. It's the, it's the default. It's the default option. So they've tackled some some big things in the uh, in 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 the, in in those kinds of spaces mm-hmm. in the operation spaces where actually you do save a lot of energy and you mm-hmm. you know and save a lot of emissions and so on. But they've also at the same time kind of worked with their employees to say. Look, we are a retailer, so if we exist in communities, that community is not going to be happy or satisfied to know that our store is kind of, you know, uh, has the latest technology, sustainable technologies kind of uh, embedded into it. The community will actually want to see some outreach from the stores to work with them. I mean, employ... Disabled people in their in the store, or kind of you know help out with with some charitable work or something, so that you know kind of there is that feeling that you are you are one of us. So that was that's one example I can give you where they're tackling kind of multiple things mm-hmm. and, and at, at the same at the same front.
0: Excellent. Okay. Um, doing this right sounds like a competitive advantage, right? You are getting high sort of customer engagement, high employee engagement, saving money. Are you seeing companies share what they've learned about how to be more sustainable, or are they kind of keeping it a secret sauce because it is a competitive advantage? These technologies and these processes, I mean, what a treasure trove of information, but it's also, it's a competitive landscape. So what are you seeing there? That's
1: that's, that's, uh, also a very, very good question. Um, It's, again, I mean, it's, it's it's, it's a mix. What you see out there is a mix. I mean, there are companies that, Firmly believe that sustainability needs to be put in the pre-competitive space. Mm-hmm. So you know that's not something we we, we fight about. Let's mm-hmm. fight about whose whose product does better in the in the marketplace and so on and so forth. But they will collaborate on on technologies and they will collaborate on kind of you know um, uh, difficult problems like. Deforestation. How do we solve deforestation? No one company can go it alone mm-hmm. when it comes to that. So that's where again collaboration is 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 necessary. Uh, Unilever, for example, you know they had a, a compressed can deodorant and they made that technology open source. Mm-hmm. Enel, which is a very, very large Italian uh, electricity company, they have made much of their technologies kind of also uh, open to, to someone else. So it depends on, on the company. I know in the chemical industry as well, kind of there are collaborations uh, that we don't see. It's kind sure, of happening yeah. behind the scenes in, in R&D and so on and so yeah. forth, all with a view to kind to make, you know, a host of companies sustainable at the same time. Um, conflict minerals issue, which came up with these digital devices where the kids in the Congo were mining uh, these minerals, and they were coming into our phones. So, there was this plea to kind of, you know, clean up the supply chain. A bunch of organizations like Apple and Samsung and Nokia, they got together to, to clean up that supply chain. So, I think... I'm sure companies do have uh, secrets and they're keeping some of them uh, to themselves to be able to play the competitive advantage game but there's uh, in the in the kind of uh, higher consciousness of things it's also emerging that okay I mean you know this is uh, germane for us all. So, yes. so let's work on it together.
0: Excellent. Well, that's good to hear. Um, to write this book, you conducted over 25 interviews with multinational companies.
1: Uh, oh, well over 100 interviews. Well over 100 25 but companies. 25 companies. Thank you. 25 companies,
0: over 100 individuals yeah. at those companies. And what I thought was interesting is those individuals were sort of across the leadership spectrum. So you said mailroom to boardroom type of thing. Was there anything that everyone commented on? Any universal trends, no matter the sector, role, level?
1: Yes, that this is truly important and we must be doing something about this and it's high time and all that kind of stuff. Everybody shares that.
0: Was there anything that surprised you from those interviews?
1: Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, it's, it's, it's interesting that more than the interviews or the content of the interviews, what is surprising is what you learn about organizations and, and, and how they operate. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are organizations where kind of you know, you, uh, the, the, where they're happy to have you videotape the interview, for example, you know. And there are organizations where you cannot even audiotape an interview. Right. Now that says something. I don't know what it says, sure. <laughs> but it says that companies operate, kind of mm-hmm. companies operate differently. There's a company where the CEO might come outside uh to uh, to greet you and, right. and, and 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 you know, kind of sit you down and so on. And there are companies where you might have to go through three or four levels of, of uh admin assistance and so on to finally get into the CEO's room. So these are things that you notice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's uh, that you find kind of surprising as well. One thing I learned is that, you know, the real stories really come out when you move away from the C-suite, which is why I uh, always made sure that I spoke with some middle managers. And wherever possible, I visited factories Mm -hmm. and I spoke with the factory workers and I went to branch offices. And so just to see kind of, is this ownership concept that I'm proposing, this buy into sustainability, wholesale employee engagement, is this real? Or is this something that's just kind of, you know, uh, in the head office? Mm -hmm. Because that happens, that head offices are more... But um, there, there, there's some very, very interesting kind of variations as you move across um, <laughs> different parts of, of, a giant, of a giant company. Yeah? Sure.
0: makes mm-hmm. absolute sense. Sure. Well, as we come to the end of the interview, if someone doesn't read your book or doesn't even have time to finish watching our interview here today, what are, in a couple sentences, the main takeaways that you would like anyone who, who you know, catches this interview, reads the blog post about it, what are the couple things you'd really want them to take away?
1: The first thing I would say is that, you know, the cost of inaction is higher than the cost of action. I think a lot of folks don't realize that. They're not reading the the scientific news that is coming out. And the second thing I would say is that, you know, you just can Always do something, whether you work at a company, whether you are the CEO of a company, whether you aspire to work for a company, all of the, even just even leaving the consumer side aside for now, just thinking about the workforce and the numbers we have in the workforce, if we can mobilize a significant portion of that workforce, we get something called the Million Man Effect, which is kind of you know, together we are stronger. So I want to leave everybody with the sense that you know, together we are stronger, and that small actions can make a big difference, and that no 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 action is 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 is, is small enough. You know, starting from the mundane, of kind of you know, putting the lights out. Mm-hmm to kind of figuring out perhaps a way to, to suck carbon out of the air or to kind of, you know, alternative to plastic packaging or plant-based burgers or whatever it is, whatever is in your realm of influence, you have to do it. Being a bystander is not an option anymore. You've got to lean in and be an owner.
0: Well, that, I don't think, could be a better way to end that call to action Uh, for all of our viewers and listeners that being a bystander is not Mm -hmm. an option. CB Bhattacharya, thank you for not being a bystander, uh, for putting this book and your workout into the world. The book is Small Actions, Big Difference, and it is available now. CB, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.